so good to be here. Hey, first of all, uh, if, you're the one, if you want to follow the actual Bible, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, if not, we've created some really easy to follow on with slides that, that we'll get to in just a second. Thanks for being my San Antonio family. Um, I've never been here in my life, so, uh, so this, is, this, is, this is fantastic. Uh, last Sunday I was in Branson, but I had Sunday night off, so I got to go see the Cowboys stomp the Eagles, right, which was <clears throat> really, really good. And so, yeah, so I've had a good time um, in Texas. couple things. Um, I've had the amazing privilege. I have a couple theology degrees. I've had the amazing privilege of being mentored by a pastor who happens to have his rabbi training as well. So my stuff tends to come from that bit. Um, also, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. So I am qualified to sort your head out. So careful, careful what you say to me afterwards. I can see through all that stuff. Um, on your way out today, uh, on the right there, we have a table set up with our teaching resources on it. Common um, sort of feedback I get is, where do I get more teaching like that? Well, there it is there. Um, everything's available in audio and video. Um, it's in USBs, uh, so they're little flash drives um, that, that play audio video file. And um, if you're wondering why we carry that around with us, it's because we make a lot of money from it. And the reason we do that is because we believe and live with the conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so what we do with that is we use that to create a fund for our missions in the world. Our missions of choice are three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town, South Africa that gets girls out of the sex industry. Um, but we, we, think it's, it, we think it's weird and inappropriate to just tell women you shouldn't sell your body. That's weird. If, if that's their only option, Option to make money. Um, what we need to do is give them options and education and compassion so we get them off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can do our part to break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats. Um, we're actually a viable diversion option to Pullsmore Prison there. And so all I'm asking you to do is after this is over, if you come back there and let me put something in your hands that changed the way you look at God, and in so doing, you put something in our hands that helps us feed, close, shelter, educate mentally handicapped children in China. I think that's a pretty good trade. There's all, I would tell you about all the new stuff, but since it's my first time here, it's all new, all right? So there's all kinds of stuff back there. I, I, I got too embarrassed for words for what particularly Pentecostals were putting on the internet about the book of Revelation. I couldn't cope, so I just decided to teach through it. Uh, I've also, um, my master's degree is in sexuality, and so I, uh, the church leaders asked me to cover that whole topic, so there's an 11-part series back there on that. I um, also have a, a, a six-hour short course on how to approach the Bible better. What we don't want is for the book that's supposed to reveal the story of Christ to get in the way of people's faith in Jesus. And so what I, what, I, what I tried to do is go, well, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to approach it this way. And so that was filmed at the head of the, uh, the president of the Assemblies of God in Australia. Um, he asked me to do that and graciously gave me the footage. So there's all kinds of stuff back there. Um, so come back there and, uh, and, and let me bless you with something that lets me bless somebody else. All right. So uh, I want to talk to you about Jesus today. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a great topic uh, to talk about uh, the first time you're in a place. Plus it's Christmas. And, and so I want to talk to you about the humanity of Jesus. Um, the humanity of Jesus is very, very, is very, very important. And let me, be, let me say something, 15 seconds, this should be um, obvious, but in case it's not, I don't want you to assume something that, that, that might not be assumable. I affirm the divinity of Christ, okay? I affirm that God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that for a long time, and now we do. I affirm that. I affirm that the fullness of God is found in Christ alone. I affirm that. Matter of fact, I take that so seriously, there's a 10-part series on that table about the implications of the divinity of Christ. I take the divinity of Christ seriously. However, I also affirm that Jesus was a human being. Orthodox Christianity from the beginning has been Jesus was fully God, 
and fully man. And you might be thinking, well, why is that important? Well, here's why that's important. It's because if we only think of Jesus as God, it becomes very easy to rationalize not living how he taught us to live, right? So it goes like this. Come on, bro. Jesus taught us to be better to our enemies than that. You can't treat your enemies like that. Jesus taught us to be kind to our enemies. And you're like, I know, I know, but that was easy for him. He was God. Yes, but he was also fully man. And and I want to talk to you, there's no season better to talk about Jesus humbling himself to become a man than Christmas. I want to talk to you about the human Jesus, okay? And and, and in his humanity, Jesus was a rabbi. How do I know he was a rabbi? Because they called him rabbi. And that was a big deal. Like in the whole Bible, there's only three people called rabbi. Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Paul, Rabbi Gamaliel. That's it. That's it. You don't. You never see Rabbi James, Rabbi Peter. Ra- no, 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 no. You see Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Paul, Rabbi Gamaliel. Why? Because it was the highest honor in all of Israel to be called a rabbi. What it meant was is that in a world where only 3% of people could read and 97% of people couldn't read, it meant that we trust you to teach the scripture honestly. We trust you to be authentic and help us with how to live. Every Hebrew boy wanted to be a rabbi. And so that was a very special, special title. And I want to talk to you about that because rabbis had disciples. And so for us in 2023, I'm assuming I'm in a room full of disciples of Jesus. And I want to talk to you about what that means. And hopefully Jesus gets bigger, the cross works better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures get bigger, not smaller. That's my goal today, that you fall in love with Jesus more than you thought possible um, today. I'd like to open with a prayer that I'm going to invite you to pray in your heart. And only if the Holy Spirit moves you do I want you to pray this prayer because there's no vacancy in the Trinity for me. Okay, so I'll tell you the prayer, and then I'm going to invite you to uh, share in it. Lord Jesus, um, may no one ever reject you because of the way I'm presenting you. If you're willing to pray that prayer in your heart, I'll just invite you to do that. Lord Jesus, let no one ever reject you because of the way I'm presenting you. Amen. Matthew chapter 4 So Jesus is calling his disciples. I want to read the story and let's see where we find ourselves in the story. My way of teaching is pretty simple. I'm going to ask what happened, and then more importantly, I'm going to ask what's happening in us right now because of what happened. This is Matthew chapter 4. If you could bring that slide up for me. It says, when Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. If you're going to try to take notes today, great. That's a key sentence. They're fishermen. Come follow me. That's a big sentence. Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Pause. Can we just all admit together that Jesus' invitation needs a little bit of work? Okay? That's bizarre. It's two words long. Follow me. Why? I want you to fish for people. That's weird. That's a strange thing. The problem is, is that it works, right? Grown men start leaving everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch is vague at best, right? It's like, follow me. Okay, you imagine if you're married going home, how does that work? You know, hey, sweetie, how was your day? I quit my job. What? You quit your job? Yes, I quit my job. Why? This guy came by, told me to follow him. I thought it was a good idea. Where are you going? He didn't say. When are you coming back? Didn't say that either. I just thought that was a good idea. That's weird at best. But watch, it works. Check this out. Next, at once, they left their nets and followed him. Bizarre. 
Maybe they're two middle-aged guys down on their luck and they're just having a crisis, right? None of it, it keeps working. Watch what happens. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee and preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. What a bizarre response. Four for four grown men leaving everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch lacks any detail at all, and they left their boat in the water. Look, maybe they didn't like their wife, but to leave your boat, that is an entirely different thing. And then it keeps working. This is the, the first four disciples were fishermen. Fifth disciple was a tax collector. Check this guy out. This is Mark chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach him. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me. There's that strange sentence again. Jesus told him, so Levi got up and followed him. Huh. What's this? Five for five. Grown men leaving everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch is vague. He ends up going 12 for 12. And if you read it, there's lots of times people come up and say, can we follow you too? And he's like, it's not your time. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, is there ever a moment Jesus doesn't want you following him? And what is going on here? And when I learned this, it changed my life. And I'd like to uh, share it with you today. See, to understand this, we've got to understand that the highest honor in all of Israel was to be a rabbi. But at the end of the day, only the best of 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 the best make it. It's kind of like this. How many boys grow up in San Antonio wanting to play for the Spurs or the Dallas Cowboys? All of them. How are they going to ever actually play for the Spurs or the Dallas Cowboys? None of them. Why? Because most people just aren't that good. And don't be offended, there ain't but one Steph Curry in the world, right? There's only one Shaq. That's not offensive. But that, that, that's why every 45-year-old man in San Antonio has a back-in-the-day story. Like, I was awesome back in the day. But then my knee, right? It was just my knee. And, 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 and maybe, maybe, but more than likely, you just weren't that good. That's exactly what it was like to be a rabbi. Everybody wanted to be a rabbi, but at the end of the day, almost everybody wasn't good enough. You were told, go back and earn a living at your family trade. You're disqualified from ministry. So I'm going to take the next three minutes, and I'm going to tell you what it would have taken for Jesus to be a rabbi, okay? So I don't want to bore you with details. If you're a nerd and want to read about all the details, you could read Rabbi and Talmudin by Ray Randerlin. You could read Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus by Louis Verberg, Covered in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus by Louis Verberg, Meet the Rabbis by Brad Young, and Jesus the Jewish Theologian by Brad Young, Poet and Peasant by Kenneth Bailey. You can read all those books, or you could just take my word for it. So here's the thing, all right? <clears throat> Here's what it took to be a rabbi. Ready? This is going to be so fast. You're just going to pay very close attention. Here we go. Ready? Uh, step one, you had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. If you memorize Leviticus by the age of six, it qualified you to go to the first training school. If not, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified for being a rabbi. You're going to have to earn a living at your family trade. But the best of 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 the best six-year-olds memorize the entire book of Leviticus by the age of six. If you memorize Leviticus by the age of six, you get to go to the first training school. Next slide. The first training school is called the Bet Safar. If you could, yep, there it is. The Bet Safar literally translates the school of the book. Okay, um, that lasted from six to twelve, and from six to twelve, your job was to memorize the whole Bible. 
at that time. The whole Bible at that time was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, okay? So you had to memorize the entire first five books of the Bible. If you failed to do that, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of the best of the best of the best of the best memorized the whole Bible, which qualifies them to take a test. Now, which leads to this question. If your job is to memorize the whole Bible, what could they possibly be testing you on? Well, your test at 12 years old was not based on your mastery of content. You had to master the content to take the test. Your test was on your ability to ask questions about the content in order to make a conversation about God go further. The greatness of rabbis was not known for their ability to close conversations, but to open them. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, what was he doing? He was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions, not his statements, his questions. Now, if you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, you graduated to the next school. If you didn't, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified for ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of the best of the best graduate to the next school. The next school is called the Bet Talmud. The Bet Talmud literally translates discipleship school. It's the school of disciples. It lasts for 18 years. It was five stages long. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call them stage one, two, three, four, five. The idea is, is that if you graduate from stage one, you get to go to stage two. Yes, everybody's with me. Two to three, three to four, four, two, five. If at any point you fail, you're told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of the best of the best of the best of the best, keep going. If you ever wondered why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30, and then at 30 he reappears and everyone's calling him rabbi, this is why. Now, if you make it to stage five, everybody graduates. The only thing left to determine is, what kind of rabbi will you be? There were two types of rabbis. Rabbis without authority and rabbis with authority. Only two types. 99.9% .9 of all rabbis were rabbis without authority. But the best of 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 the best, about once every two or three generations, a rabbi would come along so special that they would say, no, 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 that's a rabbi with authority. Let me show you the most important word I'm going to teach you today. The word is samika. All right. So let's let's try that with some um, some real let some real spurs gusto. Okay. Not in a way that points you out, but just energy. All right. It, it sounds like this samika. All right. Let's try that. Ready? Go. Samika. Let's try it again with about twenty percent more energy. Ready? Go. Samika. Perfect amount of energy. Now, if you want to sound Jewish. And you all do. We're going to do this at the end. All right? So let's, let's, let, let's practice that. It just sounds like this. All right, ready? Three, two, one. All right, perfect. Let's try that again just because it's fun. Ready? Three, two, one. So there were rabbis without Samika. And there were rabbis with Samika. Now, the difference between a rabbi without authority and a rabbi with authority was basically this. A rabbi without authority had to teach the scripture the same way his rabbi taught him. So a rabbi had mentored him for 18 years on how to teach scripture. A rabbi's way of applying scripture, not just teaching it, but applying scripture, was called a rabbi's yoke. A yoke was basically a summary statement of how to apply the scriptures. It was what you bound, what you loose, that was forbidding or allowing. It's 
When can you divorce? When can you not divorce? What's work on Sabbath? It's, it's these sorts of questions. And if you were a rabbi without authority, you had to teach the scripture the same way your rabbi taught you and pass his yoke along to the next generation. But if you were a rabbi with authority, you got to make up your own yoke. You could start your own movement. You could create a different way of applying these scriptures. Now, here's how they determined who had authority and who didn't. When you graduated from rabbi school, they baptized you, all right? Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, what did he do? He went out to the desert to be baptized by John. Now, at your baptism, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority to be considered a rabbi with authority. Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one, John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. It's almost like the father was saying, if no one else is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but a rabbi with Samika. <laughs> Which means Jesus can make up his own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. Think about your Bible. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with authority. That doesn't mean he was yelling. It meant he was saying something new. Jesus' yoke was saying something new. It created a movement. It, for, for hundreds of years, it was called People of the Way of Jesus. In the 300s, it got shortened to Christianity, just because that's easier to say. <laughs> but, but, but here's the point. If you're a disciple of Jesus, unless you've been given special samika, and you haven't, then we have to teach and live the yoke of our rabbi, which leads to this question, is there any part of our walk of faith where we've changed his yoke? Have Christians changed the yoke of Jesus to suit themselves and then called it Christianity and then wonder why people reject it? Lord Jesus, let no one ever reject you because of the way I'm presenting you. Now, now the first thing a rabbi would do is he had to go get disciples. Because a rabbi not training the next generation is just kind of like a monk. I don't know. Like they, 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 you, need to, you need to go find disciples. And, and I want to make sure you're tracking. Where would the new 30-year-old rabbi go find disciples? At the Bet Talmud. And what would he find? He would find pre-vetted 12-year-olds who'd already memorized the whole Bible and asked the right questions about it. So the new rabbis <clears throat> didn't have to ask, were they capable? Were they smart? Were they disciplined? New rabbis didn't have to do that. They just had to ask one question. Do I believe they could do greater things than me? And if the new rabbi believed that the pre-vetted 12-year-olds could do better things than him, he would ordain them into his rabbi school with two words. Follow me. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Every Hebrew boy wanted to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me, but 99% of them were told, you don't have what it takes. But this new rabbi, he doesn't go to the Bet Talmud to find disciples. Where's he go? To the lake. Hold on. 
If he goes to the lake and finds some fishermen, hold on, if they're fishermen, what does that mean? It means they've been disqualified. And he says, Simon, Andrew, follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity. Why? They've longed their whole life for that high honor. That would be like a 34-year-old washed-up basketball player from San Antonio getting a call from Greg Popovich saying, we got a spot for you. That guy's leaving everything <laughs> to go do that. Oh, hold on. The yoke of our rabbi qualifies disqualified people. That is the yoke of our rabbi. So when Christians, in the name of Christ, try to come up with ways to disqualify people, instead of exploring every way to requalify people, they've changed his yoke. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Oh, hold on, hold on. First four disciples, what was their job? Fisherman. Fifth disciple, what was his job? T tax collector. Where was he a tax collector? At the lake. Hold on. If you're the tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? Fishermen. In other words, we're going to find out right now, do you four have what it takes to follow me? Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years and let's go change the world? That is the yoke of our rabbi. <clears throat> now, once a rabbi had his disciples, the first thing he would train them to do is to walk. Like Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciple if you walk how I walk. That was quite literal, actually, and symbolic, obviously. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciple by your love, not by your opinion about climate or sex or politics, and certainly not being amateur predictors of doom. They will know you're my disciple by your love for your world. And so what they would do is they would do walking training. Jewish historians say you could always tell which disciple belonged to which rabbi by how they walked, which makes me wonder if there wasn't a rabbi in the first century with a limp or something. Like, so, so you would just walk how he walked. And you could always tell who the best line leader, who, who the best student they was. The best student got to be the line leader, just like now. And you could always tell who that was because the rabbis wore these shoes. It would throw up, it would throw up dust that would cover the student from the waist down. But this wasn't dust you wanted to wipe off. It was dust you wanted to show off. It was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It was telling everybody, I was the best today. So you'd go back to synagogue, you'd go back to temple, and you'd be like, hey, <laughs> check out my dust, right? It, it, it was that. And, and here's the truth of it. You'll either be covered in the dust of your rabbi, or you'll be covered in the dust of your own issues, the dust of your mom, the dust of your dad, or my personal favorite, the dust of that's just what I was always taught, as if that's going to change the world. The hope for the world is the yoke of Rabbi Jesus. I think a question every Christian should ask is this. If the whole world converted to how I'm thinking about God, would the world be better? What if there was a revival tomorrow and everybody converted to Christianity, but it's the Christianity you're picturing? Would the world be better? And if the world wouldn't be better, then there's a hole in our faith. We've changed his yoke. I, I love the yoke of our rabbi. I truly believe with all my heart and all conviction that the way Jesus saw God, the way Jesus saw the world, and the way Jesus, this is really important, the way Jesus applied scripture, if adhered to and lived by, would change the world for the better. And not even close. The question is, is have we changed his yoke? 
I love the yoke of Jesus. Like, <clears throat> there was this one time um, that there was this lady, and she was caught in the act of adultery. Like, in the act. In the, in the act. Like, that is not a great spectator sport. And she gets caught in the act. Now, you guys know your Bible. There's a Bible verse in context. What does the Bible clearly say to do to someone caught in adultery? You stone them. So they bring her to Jesus. I want to make sure we're tracking. Got to track, right? I want to make sure we're tracking. Why do they need Jesus? They need someone with? Yes. So they bring her to Jesus. They say, Jesus, the scripture says stoner. We have a verse to prove it. The scripture says stoner. What's your yoke say? That Jesus is in a conundrum. What do you do? The Bible clearly says to stoner. What do you do? Now, does Jesus want a stoner? No, but, but he's supposed to keep. So here's, he does something so profound that we can learn from. Here's what he does. He says, you're right. The, the scripture says stoner. So my yoke says stoner. There, I've kept it. Oh, but because I have authority, which means I can make up my own yoke. Um, my yoke says stoner, but my yoke also says you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. <laughs> this is like rabbi kung fu stuff. <clears throat> so everybody gets tired of holding their stones. And they walk away. Jesus draws in the dirt, does stuff like this. He waits for all of them to walk away. And then he says to the lady, lady, he doesn't ask what she did. He, he, the master of a question. Hey, lady, just answer the question. Where are your accusers? She looks around. She says, they're not here. He says, great. Then neither do I condemn you. Why? The Torah says you have to stone someone caught in adultery. But the Torah also says... You have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Pause. The yoke of Jesus Christ looked at someone caught in the act of adultery and refused to condemn them. The yoke of our rabbi looked at someone caught in sexual sin and refused to condemn them. Have we changed his yoke? My yoke couldn't do that. I grew up in an old school Pentecostal holiness church. As if the word Pentecostal is not enough. We got to add the word holiness to it. And in my church growing up, if you committed sex sin, they announced it from the stage. That's not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 with severe daddy issues. <laughs> they changed the yoke. People go, people, then they left the church. Of course they did. And people go, oh, they rejected Jesus. No, they didn't. They rejected that image of Jesus presented to them. The yoke of our rabbi looked at someone caught in the act of a sexual sin and refused to condemn them. What was this next line? Now go and sin no more. We reverse it and go, you better stop sinning so God won't condemn you. That's not what he said. He said, I'm not going to condemn you and let the kindness of God be the thing that leads you to repentance. That is the yoke of our rabbi. There was this one time Jesus went to a prostitute's house. 
Which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to do that? No? Okay, if I ask you if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is yes, right? Is Jesus allowed to do that? And would there be a more awkward place on earth to run into Jesus? Like what, in the first century, what was going on at a prostitute's house? Business. Like that would be so, imagine Jesus is between customers, right? And so this guy comes out of the back room and he's like, oh, Jesus. Hey, man. And remember, it says that he was so kind to the prostitute that she knelt down and wiped his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, that's it. All your sins are now forgiven. No sacrifice, no temple visit, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9 and 10, no sinner's prayer. I know it surprises a lot of people. Anybody got saved before the book of Romans was written, but they did. Jesus meets this lady with compassion and offers her the compassion it takes to change your life. That is the yoke of our rabbi. You know, the yoke of Jesus was in the Old Testament too. (laughs) There's a great passage in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, David. By faith, Samson. If you go read their stories, they were all jacked up beyond all recognition. They all made mistakes with zeros attached. Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. If CNN and the internet would have been around by then, what would you say about Abraham? Would Abraham be welcome to preach here next Sunday? Or would we talk about his mistakes? Moses was a premeditated murderer. God said, I'll use you to write the Bible. David had 700 women. 700 women. You know, there are Christian denominations that in their written bylaws would never let David preach from their stage, but they'll open a book David wrote, call it the Word of God, and fail to see the hypocrisy in that. Solomon had a thousand women. A thousand women. A thousand women. My goodness. Solomon was dating the entire town of Waxahachie. (laughs) Imagine that call. Excuse me, sir. Are you you the guy that navigated the affections of a thousand women? I am. You've got to be the smartest guy on earth. Let's write a book together. It's almost like God was always finding every way to re-qualify disqualified people. That. I, I could talk about the yoke of Jesus all day. But if we do that, we'll run into the second service. It just comes mayhem. So, and if you get hungry, you'll turn on me anyway. So here's the thing. I'll tell you two more stories. One from the Bible, one from my personal life. Um, there's this line in Matthew 9, I think it is. It says, Jesus ran his, he, he took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now that's a quick line, but Caesarea Philippi is an hour and 15 minutes by car on a paved road today. You didn't just meander on up there. Plus, it's the place no Christian would go. Like the worst thing going on in San Antonio tonight is Nickelodeon compared to Caesarea Philippi. Like this was the most debaucherous place on earth. I've been there. I I have a photo of it. Uh, Let me show you a picture of Caesarea Philippi. Here it comes. Now, if if you're wondering why that photo is of such high quality, it's because I took it myself. (laughs) Professional photographers everywhere are trying to get strangers' arms in their photos. (laughs) I nailed it. Now... Caesarea Philippi was the headquarters to the goat god Pan. Actually, today it's called Paniah. It's, 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 and I don't want to be gross, and there's children in the room, so I'm going to talk a little bit of code, okay? I don't want to be gross, but I want to be um, accurate. Uh, the goat god Pan received worship through outdoor assault situations of fertility rituals. 
with goats. So, so a little bit more code. Um, this, uh, this over here, uh, there's a sign there, and it says, this is the court of Pan and the Nymphos. Okay? And, and so this cave was called the entrance and exit to hell. And here's what the priest did for Pan. They said, if you didn't worship Pan properly, he would open up the doorway to hell and swallow you into it. And so what they did is they kidnapped underclassed boys and girls and, and, and forced them into the worst assault situations you could ever imagine just to keep from being swallowed into that cave. Jesus took his youth group on a missions trip here. I'd have been fired for sure. So he's standing there. If you go read the stories, you can understand why they're disoriented. Like the worst thing possible is going on. And, 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 he, and he has to focus on He's like, Peter, Peter, right here, bro. Right here. Who do you say that I am? Peter shakes it off. He's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus' response to the worst debauchery you could ever imagine. He doesn't even bring their sin up. He's like, you're acting like that because you're scared of this? And Jesus stands over the gates of hell and says, bring it on. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I used to kickbox. <laughs> I was awesome at it back in the day. <laughs> It's just my knee, you know. <laughs> I, won the, I won the Southeastern Regional two years in a row, qualified for the U.S. Open, qualified for the NASCAR World Championship. I could fight back then. Fighting's different now. They take you to the ground and pull your arm off. It's different. <laughs> anyway, there was, this, there was this guy in my neighborhood. His name was Kenneth. Kenneth was a freak of nature. I am six foot two, 190 pounds. And if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can one day have a body like this. <laughs> Kenneth was 6'2", 200 pounds in the eighth grade. Like he's one of these freaks of nature that was shaving when we went to recess. <laughs> it never occurred to me he failed five times. I just thought we were the same age. Anyway, he shows up. I come back from the U.S. Open and... Mom had all my, mom was real proud of me. She had, you know, Beverly Goldberg's up, right? And, and so everybody come over and watch the fight. And um, Kenneth showed up and said, Shane Ward, I think I can whoop you. <laughs> I said, I think you're right. <laughs> he said, no, I want to fight. I said, I'm fighting you. You're huge. Anyway, he, he bought boxing gloves, which means he can't grab me, right? I can do that. I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown. I beat him half to death. I beat him and beat him. I couldn't hurt him. He's just, I was fast, he was slow, I was skilled, he was not. It was the thing. So I was just in and out, in and out, pop, 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 right? He got frustrated, tried to end it with one punch. And he threw this right cross. The problem was it was so slow, it was like, ah, right? And I actually had time to think, I'll move. And he left himself in this position. <laughs> and I thought, I'll end this. Never before nor since have I hit a human being this hard. It was a perfect uppercut from the ground. If you know anything about striking, it's not, uh -uh, it's the, right? Boom! Bam! I just kind of stood over him. I never, I should have kept hitting him, but I never hit him by that hard. He kind of, he, he caught his balance. He looked up at me and now he was mad. His face turned red and he said, boy, is that all you got? <laughs> and it was. <laughs> I mean, you know, you hit someone with your best shot and they're still coming, you lose. 
You know, the apostle Paul said that the yoke of our rabbi was put on public display at the cross. Oh, blessed are the peacemakers. Oh, blessed are the merciful. Oh, forgive everybody before the sun goes down. Oh, be nice to your enemies. Really? Hey, how about 39 lashes? How about a crown of thorns? How about some nails in your hands? Can you still be nice now? And they beat him 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 and they beat him. And he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving all the way to the point of death. That's why any message of Jesus, it's like if you don't do something, Jesus is going to... No! Even if there's a 25-foot cross on top of the building, you can miss the point of the cross. Jesus loved and forgave all the way to death. You can't do more to a man than kill him like that. And what happened after Jesus died? Well, no one knows. How many might know that? Except for the fact that evidently he told Peter that he went to hell. <laughs> and what did he do in hell? Condemn him? No! It says he went to the hell and preached to the dead. <laughs> this is how I picture it in my mind. I don't know if I'm right. I'm sorry. I think Jesus walked into hell and looked Satan right in the eye and said, boy, is that all you got? That was your best shot? You thought you could destroy my yoke by killing me? No, 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 no. I'm stuck here three days. I'm going to preach the whole time. And when I get out of here, I'm going to cook breakfast on the beach for the very person who denied me in my time of need. Because the yoke of Jesus Christ is love saves the day. The yoke of Jesus Christ is you always fulfill scripture instead of being right about the one verse you found. It's doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that, my brothers and sisters changes the world so in this christmas season i bless you to know that you serve a god that believes in you more than you believe in him i bless you to know that his yoke changes san antonio texas america and ultimately the world i bless you to know that fulfilling scripture instead of being right about it is the hope for the world and would change the whole world for the better. I ask us to be honest about whether we've changed his yoke and don't feel ashamed about it. Just turn around and change our life. I bless you to know that you're a part of God's biggest idea to change the world, the body of Christ, living like Jesus in the world. I hope you laughed a bit. I hope you cried a bit. I hope you're moved a lot and I hope you're challenged. But more than anything, more than anything at all, may each and every one of you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Grace and peace, everybody.